Hi everyone, welcome back to the 21 and Sensory podcast with me, Emily. I am super excited for today's episode as I have a special guest, Holly Smale. Holly is the author of Geek Girl, Model Misfit, Picture Perfect, All That Glitters and Head Over Heels and Forever Geek. That's a lot of books. <laughs> as well as two seasonal Geek Girl supplements called Sunny Side Up and All Wrapped Up. So Geek Girl was the number one best-selling young adult fiction title in the UK in 2013, which is insane, and it was shortlisted for several major awards, and it has been translated into a whopping 28 languages worldwide, which is utter madness. So I've got Holly on today because also recently she has been diagnosed with autism and she's written some fab articles on her diagnosis for the times and the sun which you might have seen um, as well as being interviewed on like multiple radio and tv shows so she's very popular at the moment <laughs> so i've just reached out to ask her if she might like to come on my podcast to chat a little more about her diagnosis and being an author um so yeah holly would you like to say hello hello thank you for having me no worries. It's so kind of you to come on and being open to chat to me. <laughs> yeah, I'm excited about it. <laughs> cool. So I think a lot of people might have potentially read your articles in The Times and The Sun and seen you kind of on radio and TV lately. You've you've been everywhere in a good way. Um, so, <laughs> so you recently got your diagnosis of autism and I just want to say huge congratulations and welcome to the club slash community um Best one. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so do you want to kind of explain because you were I don't know if you're still 39 are you yes, still I've got you still I'm 40 but yeah I'm still okay 30. fine do you want to sort of explain a bit of the kind of backstory to your diagnosis and the process that led up to it um yeah so um I've known I was uh different in quotation marks um since mm -hmm. birth essentially um right back to my earliest memories of being three years old um and I knew that I didn't seem to feel the way other people felt um or um communicate um or just I just knew that there was a gap between me and the rest of the world um I remember watching children playing outside when um, I was three years old and mm -hmm. I was sitting in the corner with my book um, in the dark, <laughs> staring at them through the window and just thinking, huh, they are weird. Like humans mm -hmm. are weird. Um, <laughs> like, and I knew that I knew that I was, I felt like an alien and I, and I knew that there was something that was different about me. Um, and I didn't know what that difference was, um, you know, which only got deeper as I got older. Um, I had no idea what it was. And although some of those differences were extraordinary and gave me great, um, you know, gifts, I would say, some of them made it very, very difficult. Um, I, you know, at school, around other people, I started to really struggle, um, was bullied horribly at secondary school, found it overwhelming, used to hide under coats on the floor of the changing rooms because uh, it was too loud, too noisy. Everyone was being too mean. I was too confused. So I'd sort of black out underneath coats. Um, and, you know, those differences which felt left me feeling like an alien my entire life, um, in my 30s, mm -hmm. they just became overwhelming. Um, and I kept thinking I'd grow out of it at some point and that I would learn how to be a human better. <laughs> And I didn't. Mm -hmm. um, and I, you know, I was struggling with relationships, was struggling with friendships, was struggling with work. Um, 
and I was really struggling with depression and anxiety on quite like a severe basis. Mm. And then COVID happened. Um, and I kind of came off the treadmill that I'd been on with my career for a decade, you know, that was either writing or doing book festivals or traveling on the road to schools. And I kind of came off that treadmill because, you know, legal requirements. <laughs> and I had a lot of time mm. for myself. And I was still struggling. Um, and I had an enormous meltdown last summer, which was terrifying and knocked me out for like 12 full hours um, and took me four wow. days to recover from, um, which was not, unno- it's not, not the first time that's happened. It is a life regularity for me. And I think because I'd come off that treadmill, I suddenly went, hang on, there's something here that I need to I I can't handle anymore. I need to know what's happening. Um, Mm -hmm. I started researching, started Googling, um, you know, Googling, why don't I understand other human beings? (laughs) Why why do I feel like an alien? Um, Why do I keep having meltdowns? Um, And the word that came came up over and over again was autistic. Um, Mm -hmm. And I kept thinking that can't be me. I'm nearly 40. Like that's something that happens when you're at school, surely. Like that's when you get found to be autistic. The more I Googled and the more I researched and the more I watched YouTube videos, I mean, you know, an autistic person will almost always be good at researching. (laughs) (laughs) So I really dove deep and um, the more I watched, the more I identified and the more I thought, oh my goodness. And I remember crying. I don't cry very easily, but I remember crying um, and just thinking, I think this might be it. And um, went to my therapist the next day and said, I think I might be autistic. And mm-hmm. I kind of expected her to sort of send me away and go, don't be ridiculous. But she just gave me this really compassionate look. And then she went, it doesn't change who you are. And I was like, how long have you known? <laughs> it's like three years. <laughs> so, which, which, you know, a lot of people have been really like shocked and surprised at, but I'm like, that's not how therapy works. They're not diagnostic. You know, yeah. they're not, they're not really allowed to just go, by the way, you're autistic. Like, yeah. So, you know, she'd been supporting me without labeling it. Mm-hmm. Um, but from that point on, you know, did more research, um, went for a clinical diagnosis because I really needed to know that mm-hmm. I was on the right path. Um, and yeah, came back in October. So it was life changing yeah. in so many ways. And I think that my emotions were um, all over the place. And they still sometimes are, to be honest, you know, mm-hmm. it's rage. And grief and sadness and and celebration and joy and freedom and it's all mixed up so it's a real roller coaster yeah. gosh wow it's really amazing to hear like I've, I've I think I've like read in your article about you saying about like it's like you said all these different things like it's kind of a relief but also then you have the grief of you know for you not knowing for almost 40 years and you know it could have been yeah well it would have been beneficial to know much sooner wouldn't it like it's uh, it's frustrating and I, I, I totally get that as someone who was diagnosed age 25 I feel like oh I wish I'd known sooner so I can only imagine how you must feel like yeah it must be so annoying it makes sense of your life suddenly you know you're like yeah. you see it with a different lens and and you know the unfortunate thing about being so late diagnosed um for me is that you, you know you've internalized the um the impressions that you make on other people so you know the words they use and the labels and the way they treat you and as someone who's neurodivergent and you'll know this too like you essentially grow up believing that you're broken in some way um mm-hmm. and that can come from like you know the more severe bullying as in you know I used to have to be stabbed with pencils and 
you know, pushed against walls and all that kind of thing. Mm. But it can also come from the kind of more insidious stuff. Like, why do you talk like that? Why do you stand like that? Why do you move like that? Why do you, you know, it, it can be just constant questioning of why are you not like us? And you absorb it. And, and and you it becomes part of you especially when it's from such a young age I mean like as in first memories all I can remember my entire life is being told that there's something wrong with me and so when you hit 39 and you've had four decades of that yeah. it's so unhard to unwire it's so hard to unwire that it's so hard to go actually there's nothing wrong with me and just because I'm always told that there's something wrong with me and that, that my brain works in a, in a strange way doesn't mean that's right <laughs> yeah um so, yeah, and especially, you know, the anger and frustration a little bit of looking back and realising that there were adults who knew around me. Yeah. Um, like the doctor who at 17, I went to the doctor when I was 17 because I was really struggling with depression, which, mm-hmm. you know, as you know, comorbidity of mental health problems because I how, how can you possibly live in a world where you're constantly being told that you're um, – broken and not get depressed <laughs> like, yeah, exactly um, it's, it's just impossible like of course you're going to be depressed I kept thinking mm-hmm. why will no one talk to me why will no one play with me why no you know why does everything I say get misunderstood um so I was really severely depressed when I went to the doctor um and he had been my doctor since birth and he said mm-hmm. to me Holly your brain is wired in a, a different way to most people's um okay. and that's not a bad thing. It just means that, you know, you have, a, you have a beautiful brain, but it's wired differently, which was very kind of him. But like, looking back, I'm like, just say autistic. Like, yeah. <laughs> I would say wired differently. Like yeah. I, I was 17 year old autistic person, which meant that that went over my head. I was like, you know, unless you've used the word, I don't know what you're talking about. Yeah. <laughs> so I just spent lots of time going wired differently. What does that mean? Um, so he clearly knew, but it, it, you know, you just, you look back and you think, what would my life have been like if I'd actually known? Yeah, exactly. Like that's, that's so tricky to, now that you have the diagnosis, just walking out from a diagnosis and thinking like everything's going to change, but actually you just spend a lot of time looking back and thinking, oh, I know why I was like that or different like traits or different like bits and pieces that like fall into place. Have you like found that at all? Mm, yeah and I'm sure you found that as well like yeah. you start seeing things through a different lens yeah so you know the frustration of if there's a moment when you come I, I was very emotional um for a long time and it took me a long time to process I didn't speak out about it for 10 months after diagnosis mm-hmm. because I wanted to make sure I understood it and I processed it and you know all that kind of stuff but mm-hmm. um it's a, like I said up and down and you know you're looking through your past and you're seeing it in a different light um mm-hmm. but you you also have this kind of expectation that things are going to be very different immediately the diagnosis is going to change everything on the spot and Mm. the reality is it it doesn't work like that because like it or not people are still going to carry on judging and you are still going to be the person who has um, built a life on masking and trying to fit in and being ashamed of who you actually are and what you actually feel and think Mm. and that doesn't change overnight you know I still don't quite know how not to mask and I don't know how you feel about that either but these are things that you've built your life and identity on (laughs) yeah exactly and you almost don't realize that you are masking because it's something you just like slip into and then you'll come home and you'll be like oh my god I've been masking that whole time like why was I doing that it's just draining (laughs) well I'm exhausted you know and and also 
from an identity perspective, you know, before I was diagnosed, it's it's quite funny because I've had a therapist for three years now because mm-hmm. when I hit, well, how old am I now? So when I hit 37, I am so broken that I need someone to help me. And so I went and got a therapist um, and I literally sat in her chair and said, I'm broken and you need to tell me what is broken about me. Um, and obviously she was like, you're not broken. <laughs> but yeah, for the yeah. next few years, we talked about why I felt that way. Um, literally an hour a week for three years. I felt like I was always fake. Like I felt like I was always pretending and I couldn't put my finger on what it was that I was pretending, but it felt like I was always like an actor on a stage and that every word I said and every facial expression I made and every way I moved and the way I sat in a chair and the way I held my hands was fake. Mm -hmm. Um, So, yeah, so I was basically, uh, you know, that was one thing that I talked about and I didn't know that there was a word for it and that the word was masking. (laughs) But I knew that I felt like I was an actress um, all the time. And that had been picked up on by people I was dating, for instance, who would be like, you feel fake. You feel like you're fake to me. And that can be distressing as well because you're like, I'm really trying. I don't don't know what you want from me. Like, I don't know how to be more real because somewhere in the back of your mind, you know it's dangerous to be real. You know that if you're real, you're going to get hurt. So, yeah, you saying about masking, it's it's really interesting that you say it like you're putting on an act and you feel like an actress because that's definitely how I feel and it feels like it's like a full-time job it's like a full commitment and I don't think people realize like you said like how draining it can be how much it can like impact you and like you know set you on the edge of a meltdown and things like that like Mm -hmm. it's so it's so difficult to explain masking to someone who isn't neurodiverse but I think you've like summed it up really well like it's putting on this act it's putting on this like front all the time and it's difficult to know when you're doing it and like you said like in relationships it's really difficult because you want to be yourself but also you kind of don't want to be yourself if you're like awkward like I am kind of thing and I totally get that yeah it's it's you know it's so I think like you you hit the nail on the head with you don't understand if you're neurodiverse because I've been asked in interviews like are you masking now and I'm like uh yeah of course I'm asking now like I want an international um no of course I'm not not just you know but they'll be like how are you masking it's like not quite that simple you know it's it's a lot more complex than that and also the mask changes depending on where you are and who you're with um you know Mm -hmm. I might mask less with my sister for instance and much harder on a first date but um you're still always you know there's always a gap between me and other people Mm -hmm. um And that gap never goes away. So even when best friends are like, do you mask with me? I'm like, I want to say no. (laughs) The reality is there is no human being on the planet that I don't mask with. Yeah. Because that's, that's the essence of what it feels like to be an alien. Like I am Mm -hmm. communicating with other humans as an alien and masking is how I do that. Mm -hmm. Um, so yeah, and especially in relationships, you know, like the few times the mask drops and I let myself be me essentially, it has historically been really, really unpleasant. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, they they pull me up on it or they have a go at me for it or they tell me I'm weird or I had yeah. one guy go, I just find it really unattractive when you do that. And I was just like, right. <laughs> why don't you do that again? <laughs> um, so yeah, masking is exhausting and I'm, you know, I'm in constant awe of all of us who are 
surviving as humans while also having to act like humans. Yeah. <laughs> and it just feels like everyone else seems to have a guide or like, mm. I don't know, something to the, like, you know, some sort of book to refer to, like on relationships and social stuff. And like, I just feel like as people who are autistic, we're just like bumbling through life, like just trying to work it out and everyone else seems to know what to do. I don't know if you feel that as well. Yeah, absolutely. And I, and I always feel a sense of vertigo as well, because, you know, you, um, you'll be, you'll be like, okay, it's going well, social interaction, um, mm. I'm doing okay. Everything's as I expected it. And then you'll put one foot wrong and it the whole interaction will shift and you'll suddenly have this sense of falling where you're like, oh, that went wrong or that went direction or you're like, you'll upset someone and they'll be like, what, what do you mean by that? And you're like, no, okay, right. Uh, and, and or they'll say something and you'll have misunderstood and it'll, the world will tip. And, you know, it's really disorientating because not only is it upsetting when it happens, but you're always kind of tiptoeing around in case it does. Yeah. So it's like walking on a world that is constantly having earthquakes and wondering when you're going to fall into a crack. (laughs) (laughs) It's very uncertain, isn't it? And it's just constant, like, juggling and, like, keeping up appearances of, you know, I'm fine, I'm fine. (laughs) Yeah. And also, I mean, I don't know about you, but um, I'm also dyspraxic at the same time. It's okay. like quite a common um, two neurodivergencies plus dyslexia, mm-hmm. so three neurodivergencies. Yeah. Um, <laughs> so that kind of, I'm kind of quite interested on, and thinking about a lot at the moment, like how they play into each other. Mm-hmm. Because obviously, when you're dyspraxic, you have to mask as well. Um, yeah. And when I'm exhausted because of my autistic bit of my brain mm-hmm. um, is overwhelmed, it will have a direct impact on my dyspraxia. So I stop being able to, for instance, walk properly, or I stop mm-hmm. being able to um, get pick keys up or use my hands. Or So they have like a – so you spend a lot of time masking both physically and mentally and emotionally, yeah. which, yeah – no wonder I need like 10 days off every time I have one conversation. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Well, I was going to like ask you, and I think I like kind of mentioned it in my kind of outline. Um, like, how do you manage, like, obviously you're a very successful author. Like, yeah. how do you manage the kind of the social side of it and the like PR side of it? How do you cope with the, the people side of it is what I'm trying to get at. Or did you just kind of mask your way through that? I mean, yeah, it's one of the greatest ironies in the world, isn't it? That yeah. <laughs> you have a, a skill set that involves sitting on your own and making up the world and being away mm. from people. And then they're like, well done, you've done that really well. Now go and talk to lots of people about it. <laughs> <You're> like, <"Whoa." laughs> um, yeah, I've, I've historically struggled. And over the last 10 years, you know, my career has been affected by the fact that I don't go to parties and mm. I don't go to book launches and I am terrible at interacting with other authors. Um so from a social aspect, I haven't done it, which, you know, hasn't necessarily been good generally. From a from an actual PR and, and you know, book tour type perspective, mm-hmm. um, it comes in short bursts, which means I'm usually kind of prepared for it, you know, okay. like you're doing a lot this week, um, in which case I will try and make myself as comfortable as I can um, and give myself a lot of breaks, um, a lot of time, da- like downtime. Mm-hmm. Um, but I will inevitably get physically ill I don't know if you find this as well but like because I internalize and mask so hard yeah. my body will physically um just disintegrate um mm-hmm. afterwards so like after a book tour I'll be in bed for two weeks okay um, so yeah it's 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 hard like it's yeah. hard on the system very very difficult yeah I don't like 
it's really interesting to hear like how you cope with it because you know it, it shows that you can you can definitely still be a successful author no matter you know kind of you know mental health or like other conditions and stuff but I don't think people realize the sheer toll that you know all this takes on you in the background and the fact that you're you know having to put on this front all the time and having to you know keep kind of positive and stuff but actually you pay the price you know for two weeks having to lie down like that's that's a huge thing that I don't think a lot of other authors I don't think appreciate (laughs) no it's you know it's like this again I mean obviously it is a natural invisible disability and you know when an author that I know um actually messaged me um a couple weeks ago when when the story came out and was like I'm like so impressed because everything I've done you've basically done it backwards and in heels which is the the quote from uh Gene Kelly and Ginger Rogers I think Gene Kelly no it would be Fred Astaire and Ginger Rogers um where you know she has to say yeah everything he does I do back and the heels because essentially you know when you've got book tours and and promotional interviews and tv and all that Mm. (laughs) it's hard for a normal person but if you're neurodivergent like that is so difficult and you have to do it because it's part of your career and if you want to do well in that you've got to do it but it's really 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 draining and people don't see the stress that it puts you through um you know, a, a 10 minute interview on Sky for me will wipe me out for three days and mm. I just won't be able to function or do anything else. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, I think it's, you know, it's important to show that we are capable of anything, but mm. also the toll that it takes and the support that we need, essentially. Mm. Um, I've been lucky, actually, that my publishers, even before my diagnosis, were well aware that I was, um, that I had support needs that. Mm that were important if they wanted me to produce anything (laughs) that's good Um, yeah I mean that's the thing over the years like I've been with them 10 years and my agent for 11 years um and they knew for instance I was never going to meet a deadline never going to happen um and they knew that I needed a lot of time between events that I needed to that I wasn't going to go be going to their parties and their launches and that kind of thing um they took all of that uh no, really compassionately, which I think shows you that you don't actually, that you can be compassionate and, and supportive without even the diagnosis, um, yeah. which is really good, I think. That's really good. Like just to hear that your publishers are like on board and like, I feel like sometimes half the battle is getting the support or the like, you know, accommodations to kind yeah. of help you feel like you can do things a bit more kind of like naturally. So that's really good to hear that their understanding of that and that they kind of give you that leeway for like deadlines and stuff like that because I think anyone would find that challenging let alone like being neurodiverse so yeah. <laughs> I definitely get that yeah. I mean it's not and I think some people might see it as an excuse like I'm just not and it's like it's not quite an excuse it's not really an no. excuse it's just that you know for instance if I've got a deadline but I've also got a book tour hmm. I can't my brain can't do both those things at once it can't it can't be traveling around the country talking to thousands of children while also writing a novel. Um, And I'm going to need that time to be sick, physically sick afterwards. So, um, you know, it's, it's just taking that kind of stuff into account, which makes a massive difference because Mm -hmm. we have so many great stories and talents and abilities, you know, across the board, neurodivergent people. So it's just about making sure that people are giving us the support we need to, to give that to the world, you know, winnowing us out (laughs) yeah (laughs) it's so true and have you sort of found since you've sort of I don't don't know if it's the right word to say like come out as autistic or 
I keep calling which, it to come out because someone said like A-U-T, coming ah, out, which I love. I think it's I like, I've come out. <laughs> that's such a way of doing it. <laughs> so that's oh. my new phrasing, I've come out. Come um, out, love yeah. it. How, how have you found, like, have you been, like, so I wanted to talk to you about kind of like autism in women and the late diagnosis. Mm. Have you found that you've been hearing from a lot of people and especially women at all? Like, how have you found, like, just it, like how your diagnosis has been received, which sounds really weird because obviously not many people are that like public about it. But yeah, how have you found it? <laughs> it's overwhelming to be honest. Like I, I knew when I got the diagnosis because of my my job and the things that I've written about and, you know, mm. I wrote a neurodivergent character for 10 years without realising that she was neurodivergent. Yeah. Um, so I knew that my public standing and my job meant that I I, I had to think about it carefully and I had the support of my publishers which was amazing where mm-hmm. they were like we support you we're glad you've told us about this diagnosis that will help us support you on a personal level mm-hmm. um do you want to talk about it publicly and that's completely up to you and mm-hmm. I had to think about it and I was like you know this potentially making myself very vulnerable but yeah. it also could help a lot of people and it could help destigmatize it and you know mm. it could just give a different voice that isn't necessarily the the male prescribed media version that we see um mm-hmm. that likes trains you know yeah. <laughs> um, so i you know so i decided to do that piece for the times and i genuinely didn't think there was going to be much of a reaction i just thought they'd, they'd be kind of like ah. Oh, yeah <laughs> yeah because <laughs> um, so I've been overwhelmed by the feedback and people reaching out to me from so many different areas you know obviously the autistic community has been uh, overwhelmingly warm and receptive mm. I've not had any any I've only had one troll which I think is almost disappointing because I was kind of like <laughs> kind of I kind of got my uh, fighting gloves on like getting okay. ready, and I only got one so I was like oh that was a waste <laughs> um But yeah, they've been incredibly supportive. But also, you know, parents of teenagers who are are either going through the diagnosis process now or have been through it recently or haven't been through it and they've suddenly gone, oh, my God, like Mm -hmm. read the piece and gone, things are starting to click into place. Um, Or adults who, you know, things are starting to click into place. Like I think that, I mean, I've always been a fan of words, as you can tell by my (laughs) hyperlexic inability to shut up um no no it's good <laughs> <laughs> but I think the power of words I think the the power of an article in a newspaper mm. to literally change lives to literally and I'm not saying that in a narcissistic way I'm saying as in by speaking about stuff we all get to connect more we all get to understand each other more mm. and for people to go oh that could be me or that could be my daughter or that could be my granddaughter or my grandson like mm. That's powerful. And there's been so many. One made me very emotional, actually, um, who was uh, one of my readers I met five years ago when she was much younger. Okay. And she's now a teenager, like upper end of a teenager. And she's diagnosed autistic. um, And she'd been really struggling with it. But she read my piece and was like, if my favorite author is, then I'm proud to be as well. Um, And that is... That is, I mean, that is an amazing thing to hear. An amazing yeah. thing. So yeah, it's the, 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 the it's been an amazing um, response and way beyond what I could have expected. Oh, I'm so glad to hear that because <laughs> it's it must have been a scary thing to do. But even just for me to see another woman out there who <laughs> you know has a career and you know is a professional in her field 
and is successful who is autistic. It's just, it's so amazing to see because you're like, you know, just like that teenage girl said to you, you know, it's someone you can look up to and someone who is, you know, doing well in life despite, you know, struggling with, you know, a diagnosis and coming to terms with things. And it's just so nice to be able to see or kind of even just hear about someone else in the same kind of like boat as you. <laughs> like not in like I know it's really bad. Like, you know, obviously you no, struggle same a boat. lot. Same boat. But, <laughs> yeah, same boat, exactly. But like I know you struggle a lot with stuff, but it's so nice to see someone else like who gets it. Yeah. No, I know. And when I when I was going through my like research period before my diagnosis, um, I was trying to look for people, um, women in the industry, of any industry to be honest, mm-hmm. that were openly ought. Uh, and uh, there weren't really that many. Daryl Hannah, pretty much. Um, there was there was an absence, um, which left me feeling very isolated and alone. Um, and actually, one of the life changing and it's, it's a very um, hyperbolic way of putting it. But one thing that really made a big difference to me was that I had started watching Grey's Anatomy. Okay. And the more I watched it, the more I realised that Christina Yang is like me. Like she is me. Um, mm-hmm. She doesn't mask like I do, which I found fascinating. Like, Chris, I don't know if you've ever seen Grey's Anatomy. Yeah, I have. Yeah, so Christina doesn't really mask at mm-hmm. all. I mean, the only time she masks is when she's in a relationship with Dr. Burke and people tell her, and every now and then she'll try and be someone different. Mm-hmm. Um, but generally, she's pretty proud. She doesn't really care about other people thinking that she's weird or a robot. Mm-hmm. Um, but it was pretty clear to me very quickly that she was an undiagnosed um, autistic woman in the media. And watching her journey and who, how she was and her fearlessness and lack of shame over who she was, um, and also her life journey, you know, her, the storyline about not wanting children, which is something that I'm kind of going through at the moment, um, mm-hmm. it, the impact was enormous. I mean, enormous and to the point where I'd go to a therapy session and I would spend an entire hour talking about Grey's Anatomy um which is not money well spent to be honest (laughs) um but enormous impact because we want to we instinctively want to connect to and relate to characters fictional characters around us and real people Mm -hmm. and something that as I know you know and other neurodivergent people know is we don't get to see ourselves reflected Mm. um we don't get to look into cartoons and art and film and music and go oh there I am that's someone that I can understand and aspire towards and you know Mm. uh, make sense of myself fire we don't get it because there's no real there there isn't much out there um Mm. unless you're Sheldon and even he's not freaking actually diagnosed as autistic um so you know I think that the impact of Christina Yang um, in my ability to understand myself and be proud of myself um, meant that when I came out, um, I was like, if this helps other people feel the way that Christina Yang made me feel, um, if my character being openly autistic helps younger people feel like they've been seen, Mm -hmm. then I'm doing it regardless of the negative, like, you know, negative impact that it might have on my own personal uh sanity sometimes (laughs) yeah no I definitely get that and just like you say like just not being able to find anyone to relate to in these shows and all the like male characters not like they don't have a diagnosis of autism but everyone's like you know they're probably autistic and it's it's difficult isn't it because you just you just want to see yourself and you just want to be able to like relate to something and I definitely get what you're saying about Grey's Anatomy like you kind of see that in the storyline as she goes along and 
it's just nice to kind of feel like, oh, she's struggling with the same things as me. <laughs> yeah. Like, you know, that that's that having children's storyline was exactly how I feel about the whole situation. And that was that was new for me to be able to see that playing out uh, as a woman on TV. Um, and, you know, and I kept thinking, you know, what would have happened if, for instance, um, like I think I'm going to write to Matt Groening. He'll never reply, but I, <laughs> the impact of, for instance, Lisa Simpson being openly autistic as opposed to uh, just very, very clearly autistic, but not actually diagnosed, um, like that would have a, a worldwide impact. Like that, you know, we'd be able to claim her for us, yeah. you know, we would mm-hmm. it would change the way people see it and for girls especially it would change the way they see it and the pushback because I wrote a tweet last the other week saying you know Lisa Simpson mm-hmm. so very clearly canonically undiagnosed autistic girl um the pushback was insane like so many people neurotypical people going how dare you how dare you try and take her for yours uh she's just a really clever girl and I'm like Right. I don't think you understand autism at all, like Mm. at all. And that is exactly why we have to speak out and talk about it because, Uh yes, Lisa Simpson's very clever. I'm also very clever. It doesn't stop me being autistic. Exactly. um, You're like, she's also easily overwhelmed. She's also got no social skills whatsoever. Her Mm -hmm. um, moral thinking is rigid. Uh, She is uh, constantly black and white um, thinking. Um, She monologues. She's hyperlexic. Like, she yeah, <laughs> every freaking box, mm-hmm. <laughs> and everyone's like, "Look, she's just clever. Leave her alone." <laughs> like, there's nothing wrong with being autistic. But imagine if Matt Groening was like, "Yes, here is an episode yeah. of Lisa Simpson is diagnosed autistic, mm-hmm. life changing for everyone." Um, yeah, and that's uh, I think that's almost how women go under the radar is that oh, you're just seen as clever, or you're just mm-hmm. seen as well behaved, or mm-hmm. you're doing fine in school, so you yeah. know you can't be. Well, actually, you know. <laughs> yeah, it's so obvious. And, and, you know, it's fascinating from a gender perspective because that's something I studied at master's level um, mm-hmm. with Shakespeare and gender. So, you know, once a geek, always a geek. But um, <laughs> I'm fascinated in that kind of gender and feminism and stuff. And the reality is, is that for things like, um, you know, special interests, for instance, if you're a boy and you have special interests and those special interests are Lego or trains or trucks or whatever it is then you know if you've got if you're a little boy and you've got 55 trucks and you've lined them up in an order and you know you're hiding under tables and all that kind of stuff it's, it's likely that an adult's going to be like mm, we might want to look at this a little bit closer mm-hmm. <laughs> um if you're a little girl and you've got 55 barbies lined up in a glow they'll just go oh look at her in her dolls yeah. so it's it's so ingrained in our gender um mm-hmm. That you know, and the reality is, is that I don't know. Like, I'm sure you know the background of uh, autism study, um, probably even better than me. Mm-hmm. Um, but it was always originated with boys. You know, yeah. it, there were no girls in the studies because they were like, "Oh, look at this thing that that separates little boys from other little boys." Mm-hmm. So we weren't part of it. We weren't part of the narrative. And so everything that they looked at was male. Everything that they, uh, you know, used as examples was male. And that carried on for decades. Um, So, of course, we're still catching up. Um, And it presents differently in in girls and boys a lot of the time. So, yeah, I'm hoping that it will change, but it's going to be a slow process. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. I mean, like, even just you talking about, like, a tweet and people like people's reaction and you know it's it's 2021 and we're still having these same like conversations and you know 
backlash and stuff, you know, when it's it's your opinion and you're autistic and you can see it in Lisa and stuff like that. And, you know, there's still there's still a way to go. Definitely. Yeah. And it's it's weird that the um it's weird the emotion that comes with that because, you know, it's I mean, when I wrote that tweet, which was that, you know, here are some girls and women who mm. are canonically undiagnosed. So not just Lisa Simpson, but obviously Christina Yang, uh, Anna Green Gables, Amelie, mm-hmm. uh, Beth from Queen's Gambit. Um, yes. You know, it, these are women who are very clearly ticking every autistic box, you know. Mm. And it got retweeted by a number of autistic specialist psychologists and uh, diagnostic clinicians. You know, these are people who know what they're talking about and they agree. Mm. So it wasn't just like, oh, I'm a person, I have an opinion. It's like this opinion is pretty, pretty airtight at this point. Mm-hmm. Um, but the emotions it brought up with neurotypical people were, was was almost um, fascinating. Their disgust, like, how dare you? This is outrageous that you would kind of say that these people have a problem. You're like, I never said they had a problem. I said they're autistic. Yeah. <laughs> like, <laughs> exactly. Um, so, yeah, it's... that shows that we have so much uh, more to do in changing the conversation around autism. Mm -hmm. So there's no longer an insult. (laughs) Yeah. And also I think like, like I really appreciate you like being open and like talking about like, you know, autistic characters and things like that on your Instagram and Twitter. But I think sometimes people will look at like your content and think, oh, well, you know, she's, she's new to autism. She's new to this diagnosis. Like you've only just got it, but actually you've been living your whole life as autistic. And I think people don't realize that you don't just like become autistic when you get the diagnosis. (laughs) Like you've, you've been living that whole thing. (laughs) And that's what's, it's funny because, you know, like obviously you'll know this, um, what part of our brain, part of the autistic brain is um, that it works in very straight lines. Um, (laughs) And so the logic when people are like, uh, how do you know what it's like to be an autistic child? You only find out when you're 39. It's like still an autistic child, just didn't know I was autistic. Like, you know, you still have every experience, emotion, feeling, you just don't know what the name of it is. Mm -hmm. Um, And obviously that becomes frustrating because when people use arguments like that, my my linear brain goes, you're not making sense. Um, That doesn't make, that doesn't compute. Sorry. (laughs) Um, But you do get that. You get that, you know, and and I'm completely open about the fact that, you know, this is a new journey for me because I only self-diagnosed last July. So it's less than a year. And obviously I've tried to find as much as I can. I'm reading books. I'm talking to people about it, but I don't know everything about autism. And, um, you know, I, I have a very didactic voice, so I have a very um, Lisa Simpson-esque, um, I know everything, uh, sit down, I'm going to teach you kind of voice. <laughs> that's my tone. That's not because I think I know everything. That's how I speak. Um, so I'm really open to finding out more, and, and I know I get it wrong. You know, I described um, non-speaking autistic people as non-verbal the other day, and, and you know, someone rightly pointed out that's not the same. And I really appreciate when people are correcting me because I don't know everything. Yeah. But I do know what the life experience of being an autistic person is. Yeah. <laughs> Exactly. And that's the thing, like, even just as a basic level human, we're, we're going to get things wrong. We're going to label things wrong. And like, at the moment, I really, like, I appreciate that people like to be referred to as like, you know, I have autism, or I am autistic. And I always like, struggle to know how to kind of say the right thing around that. And that's something that I, you know, struggle with and always try and ask people like, how would you like me to refer to you? Like, because people want 
you know, people, I don't know, don't always like having the label of autism, whereas it's something I really appreciate. And I imagine it's something you really appreciate being late diagnosed, but there's, there's, there's a lot of things you can say wrong and not realize. And it's, it's, you know, it's all about learning and, you know, being able to apologize and say, Oh, sorry, I didn't realize that. Like you're never going to know everything. (laughs) Yeah. And I think I completely agree. I think, you know, it's being open to making mistakes, especially when when you're on a relatively public stage, you know, mm. like I, if I, if I don't tweet or speak or do interviews or podcasts because I'm scared of getting, using the wrong word or the wrong, wrong terminology, mm. then I will, I won't be able to do any of it because of course I'm going to get things wrong. And, you know, I'm open to being told to shut up, <laughs> but I, I think it's important that I'm making mistakes that other people might be making, but they need mm. to know as well. Um, and also the other problem I have is that because of my black and white thinking, which is extremely strong in my case, so I know it's across the board an autistic quality, um, mm. but even in my clinical diagnosis, the, the psychologist was like, you are particularly black and white. <laughs> and I was like, wow, even for an autistic person, I'm black and white. Um, <laughs> So I have a tendency to come down hard on one side or another. So mm-hmm. that can get me in trouble. And I'm having to try and learn to be a little less, um, yeah, a little more gray area, I guess. Mm-hmm. Um, not because I necessarily agree with the gray area, but yeah. I upset people by being quite so, this is bad, this is good, you are right, you are wrong. Yeah. It's now. difficult though when that's in built into you to try mm. and get around that or try and see things from a different perspective like I definitely get that (laughs) yeah and it can make the uh, autistic community quite an intense place because you know we are all like that essentially that is that is our build that is how we're made um Mm. and so you do get a lot of like this is right no this is right no this is wrong and Mm. you know that's great and it's actually quite funny uh, a lot of the time especially because we're aware of it so a lot of the time you'll be like I'm very sorry if that comes across as um you know incredibly pushy but that's just my tone of voice <laughs> yeah um, but you know it it I am trying not to be quite so um so strongly opinionated about it. maybe not actually that knowledgeable about it yet which is, runs against the grain for me <laughs> yeah <laughs> No, I definitely <laughs> <laughs> so you mentioned about like your MA in Shakespeare and mm. I always like to ask my guests about like their hobbies and special interests is is Shakespeare like an ongoing passion for you and have you got any more like other kind of interests and stuff that you do when you're not writing <laughs> uh, yeah I mean I think my you know my life special interest like the thing that drives me is my writing like mm. that's my kind of that's the one that's never gone away. Mm-hmm. Um, and in terms of other special interests, yeah, I have kind of lifelong kind of passion hobbies that I I dip into, like, you know, on like a psych- cyclical basis. So I don't normally do all of them at the same time. I'm normally like, so I lo- I've always loved Tudor England. Okay. <laughs> uh, I used to read all about that when I was younger. In fact, I did so many, um, so many projects on Tudor England at my primary school <laughs> but my teacher was like you can't make every single project about Tudor England like I'm like art project let's do Tudor England history let's do Tudor England literature <laughs> and they were like that's not how it works um so yeah I, I I've loved that and I still you know have very strong feelings about I've seen pretty much every tv or film version or book that I could get my hands on mm-hmm. um what else do I love 
Greek mythology, big fan of that. Okay. Um, love learning about that and tried to do a fancy dress party, but it didn't quite work out. <laughs> I also don't want to dress up like particular gods and goddesses. Um, okay. <laughs> it would have been amazing. Uh, Shakespeare, yes, although admittedly I haven't really read it for a while. So um, I tend to just more veer towards the film version now, now that I'm mm-hmm. lazy and old. Um, also, I have like weird things that I collect. So I collect sunscreen, which <laughs> it's again one of those gender things where, like, you know, talking to psychologists, she's like, "Do you have any collections?" And I was like, uh, "Sunscreen? Does that count?" She's like, "How many sunscreen do you have?" And I was like, "At the moment, I have seventeen open bottles." <laughs> yes, that counts. That counts. Um, so yeah, I'm very into like sun uh, skincare generally. Okay. Um, quite obsessive about that. I know a lot more about the skin than I probably should. Um, mm-hmm. I have uh, I, I collect portraits of women, okay. um, which sounds very weird, and I didn't realise I was doing it <laughs> until okay. I announced at a school uh, speech once. They said, "Do you have any um, hobbies or things you collect?" And I said, "I collect pictures of girls." And <laughs> oh no! <laughs> full of children and. <laughs> Literally, the teachers, just their faces. And I went, not like that. I collect portraits. Because um, I travel a lot. Traveling is one of my passions, which I think is quite rare for an autistic person, um, from what mm-hmm. I can tell. But I travel a lot. And from every country I go to, I get a, a picture or a portrait of an indigenous woman from that country. Okay. So I have quite a lot of those. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, what else? Yeah, I have I have various hobbies, and sometimes they just come and go quite quickly. So at the moment, I'm kind of starting to be interested in this American Civil War, <laughs> but it might not stick. I might not stick to that one. But yeah, I have a lot of, and I love them. So it never really makes sense to me when people are like, "It's weird that you have this collection," or "It's weird that you have this kind of obsession." And I'm like, mm-hmm. something that makes me happy. So yeah. it's something that makes me happy and hurts nobody. Yeah. You find weird. <laughs> exactly. And that's why I always ask people because I find it like utterly fascinating what people like choose to deep dive into. And yeah, what do you do deep dive into? I'm I'm very much like you in terms of like you have your kind of writing as a career and special interest. I kind of have design as like mm-hmm. a career and special interest. So that's like a real thing for me that's that I thing, right? That's like yeah. It doesn't feel like I'm working when I'm like designing. So that's why I love doing it as a job as well. <laughs> yes. And it's, is it, does it feel with you like it's like, um, I always feel like it's, I mean, it's kind of part of me as in it's literally woven into my being. Yeah. I can't um, imagine not doing it. Yeah. Yeah. It's like, it's like breathing. Um, mm-hmm. But also like it's magical, like it's come from outside me. Like I know in the old days they used to call like muses, you know, um, mm-hmm. and um, they, or, or what's it called? Genius. I think there was a, a talk by um, Elizabeth Gilbert about it. Okay. In the old days, when you were an artist and you were inspired, you used to blame, um, I think it was the genius, um, mm-hmm. which was an outside force that gave you ideas. Mm-hmm. And I do kind of feel like sometimes that's what it's like. It's like it's almost like magical, like it's coming from somewhere that's not you, um, yeah. which, yeah, I love. What else do you, what else do you like? That's a really good question. I I have a large collection of plants. I'm a little bit obsessed with like succulents and just trying to grow as many as physically possible. Um, mm-hmm. So it's kind of it's kind of out of hand at the moment. But no, it'll never be out of hand, and you should never be. That's that's, that's the uh, neuronormative um, yeah. narrative pressing down on you. You're allowed as many plants as you like. Yeah, it just I don't know. It just fills me with joy to see them and like yeah. I don't know track 
track their like progress. <laughs> <laughs> I love that, but I can't keep them alive, and it makes me too sad. So I am. Um, I have. Yeah, I'm. I'm I, I, I feel bad about collecting plants, so I don't do it as much now. Mm-hmm. It is <laughs> it's a commitment. It is such a commitment, and you're really? just like, oh god, <laughs> I'm responsible for these. <laughs> Imagine being a mum. Oh my god. I know. Oh my god. That's- like, like you saying earlier about like considering like, you know, like um, in Grey's Anatomy, like her lot not going kind of, you know, down the route of having children and stuff like that. I'm like, how do people like, I'm struggling to care for myself daily. Mm. Like, how do people, how are they responsible for, you know, smaller beings as well? Like, yeah. <laughs> mystery to me. And yeah. it's a conversation that like, I'm still getting my head wrapped around, but it's one that I'm mm. fascinated in, in, you know, talking about on a wider basis as well. Like, <laughs> you know women and children and and you know with autism combined with that like you know there are so many amazing autistic parents so obviously it is mm. not a, it doesn't preclude you but yeah. from my perspective I'm like you know like you say keeping myself alive and sane is a full-time job yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, and so many of the things that make me happy wouldn't happen if I had kids so yeah. you know my ability to write as much as I do or um, mm. my ability to travel or my uh, ability to sleep a lot <laughs> yeah. um, or have peace and quiet which is something that yeah. I desperately like I need to function mm-hmm. um, so yeah I'm I'm fascinated by it and I think what was really important about that Grey's Anatomy storyline was that it, it's not really been covered as much as it should have been in the media. Um, not a woman who can't have children, um, but a woman who doesn't want them. Um, just because she doesn't want them and there's no, there's, she doesn't need a reason, she doesn't need a, yeah. you know, a defence against it. Mm-hmm. Um, and that actually what I loved as well was when Christina says, when, you know, Owen is sort of saying, but if you had a child, you'd love it. And Christina's like, I know I would. I'm not a monster. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> would I love a child or not? Of course I would love my child. Yeah, but exactly. Will it make my life happier? I don't necessarily think so. <laughs> so, you know, it's, or would I have to give up too much of myself for it? Which yeah. is kind of where I'm at in that I think that, and I don't mean myself as in my time, because obviously that too, but I mean as in my too much of my inner being would have mm-hmm. to change in order to be um a mother essentially yeah no I definitely agree. wrong with saying that you know <laughs> yeah exactly and that, just like you said you know it's not that you wouldn't love you know the child it's mm-hmm. it doesn't fit with you right now or potentially ever and it doesn't have to be this like rite of passage that every woman has to go through because when you go on social media, it feels like you have to get married and have children and be settled and follow this kind of, I don't know, un, I don't know, it's kind of unsaid, but you just kind of feel like, as a woman, I feel like you kind of have to hit these milestones almost. Mm. And actually, no, you don't. You can do life exactly the way you want to. And you don't have to, you know, be questioned by people and you know, you don't have to actually give people answers if you don't want to. So yeah. I think it's it's great that you've said that, that, you know, it's yeah, I think something so. you thought about. Yeah, and it's something that, you know, I will talk about more going forwards in my life, but because I'm still very much working it out for myself, it's something that I probably am a little more quiet about. Mm-hmm. Um, but I do think that, you know, and I, I there's a there's a there's a piece that comes to being older because now I'm nearly 40, um, you know, I, I'm realising just 
what I need and what I don't need and what I want. Um, mm-hmm. And there's less shame in not hitting those milestones. Like yeah. I'm not married. I'm not in a relationship. I have no pets. I um, have no particular interest in having children. Like I have a niece that I adore, but I'm happy to send her back at the end of the day. Um, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I have a career that I love, um, that I'm passionate about, and I'm creative in a way that, you know, fills me with such joy. Mm-hmm. And I can travel whenever I want to when COVID isn't still going on. Um, And there are different paths for different people. And I think that that's something that, you know, we really have to start opening up the conversation about because one life does not fit all. (laughs) Um, And there's, there's a bliss in being able to say, actually my path, my, my journey is going to look different. Mm -hmm. Definitely. And I think it's, it's really nice to hear you say that as well, like back to me. And it's just knowing that you're not alone in that feeling as well is, yeah. is nice. Um, yeah. yeah. Well, we have, you know, especially as neurodivergence, we have a life of, of being given the neuronormative um, brain and way of being and way of speaking and things that they want and things that make them happy. And we spend our lives trying to fit into that mold and realizing it doesn't work. And yeah. I kind of feel the same way about, you know, the whole kind of children, you know, house picket fence and all that kind of stuff because it may make some people happy. It may make some autistic people happy or neurodivergent people happy, but it makes everybody happy. And I think the part yeah. of your way in realising that you are autistic, the relief in going, hang on, if my brain doesn't work like their brain, then it makes sense that their life wouldn't work for me either. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Yeah, no, I definitely agree. <laughs> And just to kind of like a couple of last questions. Mm. Um, so how have you found the pandemic? Like how have you found it in terms of, you know, like still writing and obviously like, you know, your diagnosis as well? Like, has it been a lot to juggle? Yeah, it's been immense amounts. Like to be honest, it's you know, I'm I'm kind of on a, a hiatus at the moment just because uh it's that's a lot to process, you know, global mm. pandemic, living on my own for a year and a half, <laughs> literally. Yeah literally not seeing anyone but my sister for a year and a half um and you know just uh plus finishing my last book series um Mm -hmm. and finding out I'm autistic so that has been a very period a period of great change internally Mm -hmm. and externally um and yeah like I said earlier I think it's you know coming off almost the treadmill of life in order to live alone for the pandemic is kind of what led me to realise that I'm autistic. Um, so it's been yeah. horrible on many, many, many levels, but there has been a few silver linings. Oh, good. I'm glad to hear there's, yeah, there's been like some positives to it and I appreciate that. How about for you? Yeah, it's it's been weird. I think um, for me, I usually work in an open plan office and I've been able to work from home and now I never want to go back to an office. <laughs> so I'll have to cross that bridge when yeah I don't know they want me to go back in but it's just you know I feel obviously grateful the fact that I still have a job and stuff like that and that actually I really hope we can keep this kind of hybrid way of working really because for a lot of you know disabled or neurodiverse people it really works I think Um, well we don't live in a society that's built for us really do we and you know the reason one of the reasons that unemployment is so high for people that are neurodivergent or disabled is that we are not um when 
these environments don't necessarily make us productive. Um, no. Whereas if we support and, you know, shift the way that we do things, then, you know, we can be as good as, if not better at many, many things. Mm. So I think that's, you know, I'm the same in that, like I work from home and actually mine my way has been to go the opposite way since the pandemic so you know I have a studio space now with other creative people that I go into probably twice a week um Mm -hmm. just so that I'm not completely alone all the time (laughs) um because I realized after a year and a half of literally just me and my dead plants um that um it it wasn't good for my mental health like I was getting really depressed um Mm -hmm. Because although I am a loner, I do also need humans um, yeah. that I can, you know, have that interaction with as and when I want to. Um, mm-hmm. So, yeah, so I go in, but even going into an office now for one day will work me out for another two days. So I'll do like one yeah. day on two days off. <laughs> that's good. That's a good, like, way of doing it. And that's yeah. nice to, like, be able to, like, dip in and, like just not feel like you have to be there all the time yeah and hopefully they'll let you kind of they'll be a bit more flexible I think I think they're going to change I think it is going to be more flexible going forwards I hope so and I feel like a lot of us have proved we can work from home and we don't need to be you know Mm. watched (laughs) so you know I think a lot of us work better from home to be honest because we can get on with it we're not distracted and we're not overwhelmed by lights and noise and other colleagues and you know exactly it's just it's a, a nightmare open plan office it really is <laughs> yeah from a sense are you I mean obviously you know people we're sensorily sensitive hence yeah why 21 and sensory right yeah <laughs> <laughs> um, but you know that on that level like offices just mm. like ugh, overwhelming yeah just so many little things like people bringing in their food and their bright like fluorescent bike jackets which I always say but like oh it's just all these little things and like constant conversation I'm just like how do people work in this like place (laughs) I don't know like there's a guy that whistles outside my studio uh there's like a car garage that that's underneath our studio um you know the cars themselves are quite quite quiet usually but (laughs) panic loves whistling and singing um and he's a really really nice guy but like ah oh, I get so so distressed I guess I have to put in like earplugs otherwise I go a little bit um mm-hmm. yeah it just great doesn't it it, it just <laughs> oh <laughs> yeah it does feel like something oh. literally like from I don't know about for you but for me sound is physical mm. do you find that Yes, definitely. Yeah. But like I can feel sounds in my body, like in different parts of my body. So different okay. sounds will feel like different things. Um, like if like so, you know, like someone screaming might be like a um like a prickling along the back of my shoulders, or you know, someone shouting might be, I don't know, so a stabbing sensation in my like right earlobe or whatever. So okay. like I feel sounds physic on a physical level, which mm-hmm be on a life basis just really really overwhelming Um, especially in an office you can't be like shut up (laughs) (laughs) if only (laughs) yeah it feels like I'm being kicked in the stomach by your whistling yeah (laughs) if people knew that they'd be like oh geez I'm so sorry (laughs) well they wouldn't stop but at least they might understand why you're glaring (laughs) exactly might be a little bit more understanding yeah. <laughs> I was going to say to you is there anything that you want to promote surely there are you know your books and things that you might want to mention 
Yeah, I'm not good at self-promotion. So, uh, you know, I have books. I'm, my publishers will probably like me to mention my last book, which was Love Me Not, which is the third book in the Valentine series. Um, mm-hmm. But uh, I'm, yeah, I'm happy to just to just chat, to be honest. <laughs> <laughs> Great. At least we got that in there somewhere. It's all good. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> at the end it's there don't worry <laughs> i've had so much fun thank you so much